following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back to the Larger Catechism, everyone. It's good to be back with our listeners, and it's good to be back myself with all of my intrepid co-hosts we have with us today, the All Five Backstreet Boys, uh, the, the full compliment. So we've got Sean Morris coming from Oak Ridge, Tennessee. We've got Nick Bullock in Stuttgart, Germany. Matt Adams there in the metropolis of Dillon, South Carolina. And Derek Bright coming to you from Aliceville, Alabama. Fellas, I was gone one or two episodes. How do we do this? I was gone for a couple episodes. How'd y'all do in my absence? Well, you might have made a guest appearance in the second episode. Yeah, you were busy that day, but you able to you were able to cut in for about 30 seconds. You popped in real quick, said a few words, and then you had to be on your way again. Oh no. Okay. Yeah. I we'll we'll just leave oh, it at that. You you are a bunch of characters. <laughs> it, was, it was very gracious of you though to step in and, and visit for it was just a few nice. seconds. We know that you love your bouncy houses and oh, that need that time to yourself. But we do appreciate you stepping in. I was surrounded by 35 uh, elementary age children, showing them the ways, discipling them in the ways of the belly flop. And because it was a it was a slide, an inflatable slide. So Westminster's first VBS in like two decades. It was quite an occasion. And I am still icing up. I am sore even a week after. And I trust you guys. But, of course, I haven't listened to the episodes that you recorded, so my trust may be eroded very quickly. I will say, though, you guys, you jokers only got through half a question. Like, it's a good thing that I'm here. We're going to get back on track today. I just want to say, you know, belly flops and bouncy castles, y'all have weirder Presbyterian meetings than we do. (laughs) It's for the fellowship, and it's great fun. So what I'm going to do is uh, read the whole question for the sake of context. This is Westminster Larger Catechism, question seven. What is God? And then we'll pick back up with Almighty, where you all left off last time. Question seven, what is God? God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. So whoever was the nicest to me in my absence, why don't you get started and tell us what God being almighty means? What did the Westminster divines try to tell us when they said that God is almighty? Well, it definitely wasn't me, and it definitely wasn't Nick, so that leaves either Matt or Derek simply by saying the least. They would be by virtue of saying the least, they were the nicest to you. So either one of you fellas. Crickets. 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 No, I can go. I, I don't know if it's a fair statement that I was the nicest about Spin and his absence. But um, I do think that when we begin to think about or even discuss the 
the fact that our God is almighty, of course, we're talking about the omnipotence of our God. And, and, and the omnipotence, we've talked about how he is uh, ever present already. Uh, he's omnipresent. This omnipotence is the, kind of the second O um, that we have to kind of characterize our God. Um, and so these three things are essential uh, to him omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience that we'll get to here in just a few moments. And what it means that God is omnipotent or that God is almighty is that simply he has the ability in and of himself to do everything that he wants to do. You know, it's there in in Genesis 17 that he identifies himself as the almighty God. Um, and so whatever he pleases to do, he has the power to do. Um, and so he, or let me put it back, let me put it better this way. Uh, there is nothing that God wills to happen that he cannot make happen or that he cannot do or that it will not happen. Um, you know, that's what Daniel says in, in Daniel chapter four, that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what has thou done, uh, O Lord? And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about the almighty nature of our God, that God is all-powerful. Uh, and of course, we get those questions, right? Those kids' questions. I just recently had one of our middle school students here in Dillon ask me, well, if God's all-powerful, if God's Almighty, uh, why cannot why why can't He change, or, or uh, why can uh, you know or why can't God make a a, a square circle or, or something like that? Um, and it's simply because He cannot deny His own nature, right? Um, he cannot change because He is unchangeable. Um, he cannot uh, make a square circle because He has defined what a circle is in creation. Um, and so, uh, you know, he's not going to deny um, his nature. He's not going to lie or do anything unrighteous. But in and of himself, uh, because he is the almighty God, whatever he wills to happen will happen. And he can do whatever he pleases uh, to do. So, Matt, there are those trick questions that the unbelievers will often try to ask us the, the gotcha questions and say, well, if God can do all things, then can God make a rock that is too big for him to roll or, or something kind of crazy like that? But I think the children's catechism maybe gives the best answer that I've ever heard to some of those gotcha questions. Hmm. Can God do all things? And the answer to the children's catechism is yes, God can do all his holy will. You know, if you ever want to get provocative with people, tell them, Hey, there's actually stuff that God can't do. That's right. And then the pin drops and it's like, what are you talking about? It's like, well, God can't lie. Yes. God is not like a man that he should change. God is not tempted with evil. He doesn't tempt us with evil. So there are things that God, we would say properly, cannot do by virtue of his infinite and unchangeable, right? Being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And if you can't tell... Even as we're going through the larger catechism, the, the shorter catechism, question four, is obviously interwoven into how we're dissecting and talking about question seven, right? 
That's right. Yeah, I was thinking along those same lines, Spin. I forget. Maybe our listeners can look it up just by Google, but there's a book out there. I think it was done by Crossway. Maybe it was done by PR Publishing a few years ago, and I think it was aimed at maybe children or or just sort of an entry level, popular level book. But it was something like Twelve Things God Can't Do or Fifteen Things God Can't Do, and it was very reverent. But it was along those same lines of what you were just mentioning. Our God can't lie. Our God can't sin. Our God cannot be untrue to his own covenant. He, by his oath, hath sworn, he sworn by his own name. He sworn by himself. He cannot be untrue to himself. So he cannot quit loving his people, his elect. He can't stop. He will not cast them off. There's, so there are things that God has, has, in his infinite wisdom, in his holiness, has deigned that he, and, and ordained that he shall not do. So can God do everything? Well, it's it's one of those those yes and no uh, questions. So that's one line of thought I had on this. The other line of thought that I had on this is simply by virtue uh, of of the sort of poetic or lyrical quality of the word almighty. I just love the word, and I love how it makes frequent uh, appearance in the creeds, and so that, that the fact that the divines incorporated this language uh, into our catechism as well. Uh, there's just something about it, uh, maybe just my own English language speaking bias of, the, I like the, I like the the, the the feel of the word on on the tongue I like it just a little bit better than than omnipotent um, you know I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth the way the Apostles Creed opens and it makes that that appearance in the Nicene Creed and and here it gets appropriated as well right into the catechism question that God is Almighty all powerful omnipotent so uh, so so glad that that was listed amongst the attributes of God as the divines uh, hashed out catechism larger catechism number seven here. You know, as as you guys are all talking around the question about the things that God can't do, uh, really at the very bottom of it is the consistency of God's attributes. If God is perfect, specifically in this circumstance, the perfection of his attributes will compel him not to contradict his essential being and the character of who he is himself. Uh, and that has to be seen. You know, if God is to be perfect, uh, as he has shown himself to be, uh, he can't then do those things that would undo his essential character. That's a great point. Derek, any thoughts on Almighty before we kind of move on to the next O, uh, the knowing all things? Yeah, first, it brings to mind some scriptures, right? First, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. And... um I think that it's important to understand who God is, what his nature is, if you will, and his essential attributes before you answer the question, what are things that God cannot do? And the reason I say that is I think that one of the things that the evangelical church struggles with today is they don't give God nearly enough credit for his um, being almighty. And they assume that there are things that he can't do or perhaps wouldn't do um, based on, well, they've made a God in their own image, right? And, um, and so I think that those questions are so good, you know, what can't, you know, what can God not do? Well, he can't lie, you know, he can't um, go against his nature and things like that. Well, um, all that is important and that needs to be answered. But the, I would say the modern evangelical 
a lot of times cannot answer that question rightly because they have not gotten um, what we studied, you know, in last the last two episodes. Um, they've not um, rightly understood that he is infinite in being glory and blessedness and perfection. He's all sufficient and eternal and unchangeable and all those things. It's um, I feel like we need to the doctrine of God is just so practical and we really need to get our hands around it as much as we can because um, so many errors would be corrected if we rightly understood who God uh, was. And I think our worship would be enhanced if we really, truly understood who God is. You know, before we move on, I'm really glad Derek brought up the 115th Psalm, uh, because there's something we haven't touched upon, and that is that God's omnipotence has direct relation to his heavenliness. Whenever the Bible talks about the power of God and and really the all-powerfulness of God, his almightiness, uh, it speaks directly uh, of his transcendence. Uh, Psalm 115.3, as Derek already has uh, quoted to us, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There's a, a separateness to God that it really undergirds and establishes the context for his power. Uh, he's not of his creation. Uh, he's not of time and space. He's not of potentiality. Rather, he is the God who is in himself uh, already, uh, the potential that he ever will be. Um, the heavenly nature of God, uh, looking down over all these things, that's why he has that directive power, that all-encompassing, uh, transcendent capacity uh, to do all things. But then there's another thing, and I want to touch on it briefly because it comes right from the same verse, and that is that God does according to his delights. Um, his omnipotence isn't just um, power in potential to do anything that could possibly ever be done, but rather uh, the Lord's all-powerfulness acts in accord with his will, with the things that delight his heart, uh, the things that um, are in, in accord with his eternal decrees. God's not going to um, you know, do these wild things, even though he may have the power to do these things. Uh, he's not going to do certain things because, again, it's not within uh, his, his delight or his desire to do so. Mm. Yeah, what you were just saying, Nick, um, is right in line with the, the helpful little comment that Voss offers in his commentary. Yeah, he says this, a God, he cannot deny his rational nature by doing anything that contradicts itself. For example, a God cannot create a square circle or make two plus two equal five. But apart from things that which would be contrary to his own nature, there's absolutely nothing that God cannot do. So I appreciate uh, those those thoughts, which complement nicely uh, exactly what you were expounding for us a second ago, brother. And what I like so much about what Nick just said is that God doesn't wield his power in the same way that sinful man does his very finite and limited power. We, we have the saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but not so with our God, because he does have absolute power. He is alone almighty and self-existent and existing mm -hmm. outside of time and space and limitation. And yet he is unchangeably good. He's not just unchangeably powerful. He's unchangeably good. So that power married with, as we'll see a little bit later, pity and pity for the guilty sinner just sets our God in a category of one. And as we continue on, I like this next one, knowing all things. Obviously, this is going to touch maybe briefly, we can talk about it today, this concept of middle knowledge. People will say, oh, I know that God knows all things. 
but he kind of looks down the corridors of time, sees them as being future. And then he kind of goes back and decrees things in such a way that it maintains the freedom of man's will. He has this autonomous will that exists independently of the sovereignty of God. And then God sort of just orders all things so that people have this absolute freedom. I, I, I kind of liken this illustration I use when teaching uh, like our inquirers class or new members is a lot of people think that God is like a time traveler, like back to the future. Uh, he hops in the DeLorean. He goes into the future, sees what's going to happen. Maybe he says, ooh, you know, if this happens in the past, then this bad thing's going to happen in the future. And then he comes back and course corrects. That's not the biblical understanding of God being all-knowing. It's closer to a movie director sitting at the premiere of his film, knowing what's coming and why. Because he's the director. He, he wrote the script. He knows all things that will happen because he has purposed every element of whatsoever will happen. And so God, when he knows all things and knows the future, it's not because he just got ahead of us, but because he's planned all things, all creatures, all their actions, and has them cohere in such a way that he gets all the glory. Is that a fair illustration or did I just commit heresy? Because I figure this is the group to ask that to and just to do it on the internet. You know what I mean? That's right. No, I yeah. think that that's I think that's a fair illustration. I you know, I'm reminded um Dr. Doug Kelly uses R.L. Dabney's illustration um a ton when talking about this idea of omniscience. because uh, R.L. Dabney in his uh lectures in systematic theology says that uh God in his own essence is the mirror and the book. Uh in in meaning that uh he doesn't you know, have to look down the corridor of time, but he just simply looks into himself, into his own mind, because he has created it, uh, he has decreed it, uh, and he is providentially keeping it. And so, uh, you know, he beholds, I think this is fair to say, he beholds all that he does uh, by his ordaining, by his disposing, by his executing. Um and so, you know, that's I always I've always appreciated that the mirror and the book is all in and of himself uh, because he uh, is above uh, all these human uh, understandings uh, and capabilities. Every, you know, every week, one of the things I get to do with my sons is I get to be uh, active in their homeschool. And one of the courses they have is his Bible. And uh, one of the things that my wife and I have been pleased to do is, is we incorporate their catechesis into it. And one of the things that I noticed also was that the children's catechism, uh, while it has so much there um, for our kids to be learning, uh, I felt like it was a little bit lean on the attributes of God. And so I've been kind of working, uh, making a few extra questions from my sons catechetically on, on the attributes of God. And this specific one, I, I recall this really funny comment as uh, I had a conversation with my son, Haddon, um, my oldest son. Uh, I said, you know, do you know what what God's omniscience is? And uh, he thought for a second because we'd been kicking around a few answers to uh, to this. He said, you know, it kind of sounds like God's a know it all, <laughs> um, and that's probably because he gets accused of that at times. Uh, and it made me reflect on it a little bit. When we talk about God's omniscience, 
Uh, we're not talking about God and his knowledge on the same level as us and the knowledge that we hold within ourselves or even the expression of it, because really I think that's at the heart of what, what Haddon was at least thinking over is that whenever we think of someone who seems to have broad knowledge or at least speaks to that knowledge very publicly, whether it's accurate or inaccurate, there's a bit of a pride stroke. There's uh, something of a, a display or a pageantry uh, to uh, the expression of knowledge. And that's not at all what's happening uh, whenever we speak about God and his knowledge. Uh, rather, there's an intimacy of creator to creature in the omniscience of God. Nothing's withheld from him. Of course, all of his knowledge is in accord with his directive power and plan. But also it's a nearness of God to his creatures at all times. And and. And that's a really sweet thing to know about God. It's not God getting one over on us. It's not God uh, trying to display our ignorance, even though that is true, especially in comparison to God. Uh, but rather, uh, there's this, this sweet nearness of God to his creation that is seen and ought to be celebrated uh, with this, this wonderful doctrine of the omniscience of God. I love that you you brought in the uh, creator creature distinction here because I th it seems that we often and again I, it sounds like I, I'm beating the same drum uh, I, every week and I, I guess I am but um, if we don't understand this rightly and God's knowledge rightly then we are going to fail to understand so many other key texts so uh, and key truths. You know, the, the question, for example, um, about election and predestination, you know, uh, did God know who was going to choose him? And um, did he look down the corridors of time? Well, uh, people mean well when they say things like that. But the problem is, if God looked down the corridors of time, that means he learned something. He took in knowledge and uh, that's not good. We don't have a God who takes in information and learns and processes it and grows in his understanding. Um, no, God's knowledge is totally different than ours. We are finite creatures who have to take in uh, information to grow. And I would say, secondly, that this really should be a comforting truth. It should be a terrifying truth for sure. God's omniscience that we, um, you know, that we can't hide from him and that, um, you know, there's no sin that he doesn't know about. Even those secret sins we don't tell people about, he knows them still. But it should be comforting in the sense that since God, if you are in Christ, since he is your father, right, you've been adopted and brought into the holy family. You've been justified and uh, you're currently being sanctified. Then since God knows all of those sins, A, he doesn't have buyer's remorse, right? Um, and B, he uh, is one who you can trust and go to him and say, Lord, you already know those secret places. You already know those secret sins. And um, I'm so thankful you know that because you're a God I can trust. You're a God who, who hears me, who sees me, who knows me and still loves me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess everything. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to truly confess um, these sins so that the Holy Spirit can can sanctify me and help me kill the flesh. So um, like once again, it's just an immensely practical doctrine, uh, the doctrine of God overall, that uh, I just love it so much. And where do Christians struggle with this doctrine, right? I, I don't think that it is they look on God and they think of, of his, his 
immeasurable knowledge as a challenge to their own. Maybe they do. I, I don't know. I don't think that's the case. I would say that Christians, at least, likely struggle with the omniscience of God regarding prayer. They would ask the question, if God knows everything, then why pray? And that's not at all the question that I think uh, David, uh, or that's not the answer that David comes to um, with, with that question. You know, if God knows all things, why pray? David would rather say, God knows all things, so then therefore I can pray, I believe. And I think of Psalm 139. Uh, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Uh, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. Uh, it is high. I cannot attain it. And there, do you see that David, he doesn't back off from prayer. Rather, it's, it's this wonderful intimacy that he understands about who God is in his knowledge that drives him to even write this psalm, Psalm 139, having the form of a prayer where he speaks to the all-knowing God on the grounds that God is intimate with him and is pleased to hear him, even though uh, he's aware that the Lord already knows it. And so I just want to encourage Christians, this ought to be a real assurance to, to us. Uh, it ought to be an assurance that God loved us, knowing even the present struggles and failures that we will have and are having. And even in light of that knowledge and indifferent in some ways to it, he still sent his son uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh uh, to die for us, uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, to be the redeemer of the elect. And it, it really ought to press all of us to further assurance and um, re really a, a further heart uh, that is wrapped around the love of God for us. I think also to kind of piggyback off of what Nick is speaking of here, just the practicality of a robust understanding of the doctrine of God, especially in his omniscience. And Derek brought it up just a few moments ago when he was talking about how the omniscience of God separates him from uh, his creation, because we have to take in uh, to gain knowledge. God is the very definition of wisdom and knowledge. And so this omniscience and his wisdom tie in together. And very practically, what we uh, what we see is that the goodness of God is displayed in his omniscience and in his wisdom because he bestows upon us by special revelation, which is his word. Uh, he gives us this special revelation to to give us wisdom, right? To to give us understanding, to to give us biblical knowledge, so that we might take something like a robust doctrine of God and and turn it into a robust prayer life. Um, apply it to uh, our daily living. You know, I'm reminded of uh, James one five. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives it to all men generously and without reproach. Um, and, and so, you know, while we're praying, uh, according to the doctrine of God, God, you know, all things you are all wise. Uh, and therefore, uh, you can give me even up a, a portion, a glimpse of uh, biblical, uh, real wisdom uh, that I can take and that I can apply 
so that I might walk in, in paths of holiness for your glory and the fame of your name. Um, and of course, as we've mentioned a uh, number of times while we've been talking through the catechisms already is that while we walk in holiness, while we walk in the wisdom of our Lord, that's where we receive the most benefit, the most blessing. Um, and so I think just to tag on the, the practicality of these uh, deep doctrinal truths is, is very important for us. It, it is amazing that God is almighty, knows all things. And so as we kind of uh, go into the remaining portion of this question, I know that Sean wants to keep it to three episodes for the sake of uh, maintaining the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we would violate that. you know. I, I mean, just the Trinitarian symbolism is, is so key here. And since we've already done the two episodes and we still have all these attributes to go, this episode will probably go about four hours. So, so be it. Buckle up, everyone. So, Sean, talk to us about most wise, holy, most just, merciful, and gracious, because I think those are made all the more amazing by the, the fact that God knows all things, right? And he knows us better mm -hmm. than we know ourselves. And yet, he is most merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness. So talk us through, uh, pick, pick one of these attributes and tell us what you think about it. Yeah, well, a couple of thoughts that came to mind, even, even as, as Derek and Matt were so helpfully explaining things a moment ago, uh, not, not to get overly heady because we've already talked about this, but this is where the doctrine of divine simplicity comes into play. I mean, it always comes into play. <laughs> and and thankfully, the doctrine of divine simplicity has has received some renewed attention in recent days. And I think we can be thankful for that. But just this idea that God is his attributes. He's not simply a sum of his component parts. And the I was struck by that as we're thinking about his, his omniscience in that his omniscience is so irreducibly tied with his eternality, as we thought about in a previous episode. You know, the way the theologians, some of the theologians will put it, is that God exists in a kind of eternal present, but even that descriptor doesn't quite do justice to it. But if I might put it this way, of course God knows all things, because God is eternally aware of past, present, and future simultaneously at all times. So of course he knows all things. The future is not secret to him. The past is not confusing to him. The present does not escape him, his knowledge or his, his ascertaining, uh, because they are all equally present to him at this moment, uh, synchronously, so to speak. So of course he knows all things. And isn't that, as you all were already saying, isn't that the great comfort that God knowing all things to whom else could we possibly go uh, to borrow Peter's language? You know, you alone have the words of life. And if we might reverently paraphrase, you alone, Lord, know all things. To whom else would we possibly turn? Well, of course, we would come to you with our cares. Of course, we'd come to you with our burdens. Of course, we'd come to you with our needs to cast these anxieties upon you in prayer. Who else knows these things? Not I, not even the most wise man on earth. Of course, we'd go to you, Lord. But then that naturally leads us to these other things. And, and I wonder... It, well, there's just so much to say here, isn't there? Pastorally, it, I was thinking I had a half thought and then another half thought, and they combined to, of course, just remind me of this of the the wonderful truth that there is nothing unchristlike in God. And the reason I thought that is because as we're going into these these next attributes of most wise, most holy, most just, 
I, I thought for half a split second of, well, these these attributes sort of get us more into the Christological direction as we think of it in terms of uh, of God's people experiencing these things temporally in the person of Jesus Christ as he has manifested himself to us in his mercy. But then I thought, well, of course they are because these are true of God. So of course they'd be true of Christ. They're all true of Christ because there is nothing unchristlike in God. Uh, he In him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, as scripture says. But he is most wise. He is most holy. Uh, he is most just. And I particularly always like the juxtaposition of uh, holy and just and merciful as those things are bumping up right next to each other, because I think even in those three attributes, we have to go to Calvary as we think about these things. We have to go to Golgotha because that's where God's holiness, justice, and his mercy and graciousness kiss, so to speak, to borrow the language of the Puritans. God found a way, and I know the word, the verb found isn't, does not do justice to it, but if you like, God ordained a way, God found a way to satisfy the demands of his holy justice, to satisfy the demands of his holy law, and at the same time to show great mercy and graciousness to his uh, sinful creatures that needed pardon and needed redemption. He found a way, and namely through his son Jesus Christ. Uh, so he has kept the demands of his law. He didn't He didn't sweep the demands of justice. He didn't sweep the demands of his law under the rug. He didn't wink at sin and, and try to ignore it and, and wish it away. No, he dealt with sin, and he dealt with it fully uh, in his son, Jesus Christ, in bearing sin on our behalf in his becoming sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that my mind immediately goes to Mount Calvary, uh, where, where justice and mercy meet, uh, where graciousness and holiness kiss there at the cross. And my mind goes to Romans three twenty six, where it's talking about the Lord Jesus, who is, as you said, second person of the Trinity, uh, the same in being in essence with the Father and the Spirit. And so he's doing the same works that the Father and the Spirit are doing. Uh, you can tell that I just preached through John chapter five. I've been uh, in my Bible and uh, on the phone with Derek Bright, especially as uh, talking about things of Trinity. But Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here we have that mercy and that graciousness and that long suffering is true of God. And at the same time, as Sean said, our God does not wink at sin. He does not sweep it under the rug, but he pays for it. And I think John Murray in his fantastic little book that you must read at some point, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he talks about how the death of Christ was a consequent absolute necessity. It was a consequent absolute necessity. It's consequent uh, upon uh, God's being and man's sin. It's absolute. It can happen any other way. And so... God did what only he can do in sending Christ in the incarnation to satisfy his justice and to justify freely by grace through faith all those who have faith in Jesus. So that God is the just and the justifier, I think, is sort of that sweet marriage of most just and most merciful side by side in the same verse. Well, guys, this has been such a fruitful discussion, especially as we're thinking about God's holiness and justice and how that interplays with his mercy and graciousness. I think for the sake of time, the will of the group is for us to wind it down right about here. So we're still in the midst of question seven. We'll, we'll hit pause right here after most just, comma, 
And we'll pick up in our next episode with most merciful and gracious. And we'll consider those attributes uh, as we get to a conclusion here of this wonderful and and and, and deep and profound uh, catechism question number seven, which has just been chock full of, of certainly theological and doctrinal insight, but I also think devotional and pastoral insight as well. So we'll we'll wind it down here after most just, and we'll pick up next time with most merciful and gracious, and then think about that as well as long suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. And that'll be uh, a wonderful way for us to want to have this survey of catechism question and answer number seven. So I'll turn it over to my brother, who's going to close us out for this particular episode, and we'll go from there. Friends, thank you for joining us again for the Larger for Life podcast. On behalf of Sean Morris, Matt Adams, Derek Bright, and Stephen Spinnenweber, uh, we're thrilled that you've been with us throughout this uh, whole exploration of the larger catechism. I don't know if you feel as if we do, but we do feel like we've been flying near to the sun, uh, thinking on the character of God and his eternal attributes. It's been a wonderful thing. Uh, and it's a high and wonderful privilege. And we do hope that you'll join us again next week as once again we dive into this question and hopefully, Lord willing, uh, close it out uh, uh, in the study of the larger catechism. All right, till then, uh, bye bye. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.